Well, good morning. Welcome to Bethany Community. I'm Phil Smith. I'm the youth minister here. If you'd like to turn your Bibles, you can go to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. We're going to look at verses 17 through 38. If you would stand with me as we read God's word in honor to him. Paul is talking about Paul here. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you everything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must keep, you must help the weak Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud, embraced Paul, and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, who has left us a model of our Savior all the more. Lord, help us as we look at discipleship this morning that we would embrace this, this, this call and this cost that is well worth it. Lead our time, delight us with yourself. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hudson Taylor was the most widely used missionary in China's history by God. During his 51 years of service there, his China Inland Mission established 20 mission stations, brought 849 missionaries to the field, trained some 700 Chinese workers, raised $4 million by faith, and developed a witnessing Chinese church of 125,000. It has been said at least 35,000 were his own converts, and then he baptized some 50,000. In spite of all these accomplishments, during his life, he suffered greatly. He moved to China and gave up all the wealth of his first world home country, the comforts that he would have enjoyed. All those were lost to him. 
He had numerous times of dealing with his own poor health, including some eye issues, keeping him from being able to even see at times. He had bouts of depression, sleeplessness, and difficulty breathing. His first wife struggled with tuberculosis for a great deal of her time there. They lost four of their seven children, and then he lost his wife. They suffered persecution, attacks, lootings, even their house being burnt down. This man understood the cost of discipleship. Here's a few quotes he said. God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. I'm no longer anxious about anything as I realize that he is able to carry out his will for me. It does not matter where he places me or how. That is for him to consider, not me. For in the easiest position, he will give me grace. And in the most difficult one, his grace is sufficient. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? The book of Acts here goes through the life of a few different missionaries and apostles specifically. It starts off with a great commission retold in Acts 1.8. Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And the book progresses through this. It is not so much an acts of the apostles, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing through them as he works and brings the gospel into all the world, into all nations. It starts by focusing on the apostle Peter. Spend some time with him. The transition from God, not just reaching Jews, but Gentiles as well. And then it moves on to looking at the Apostle Paul. And the remainder of the book mostly focuses on Paul and his life and his ministry to the Gentiles, drawing the nations to the Father. Prior to chapter 20, where we're at, Paul has already taken two missionary journeys. He's gone throughout Turkey, Asia Minor, and Greece, and connected with a number of churches there, planted many of them. He's visited Ephesus here in chapter 18, verses 18 through 21. We see that he stops by on his trip. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. They end up training Apollos later on in chapter 18, who's ministering there in the city of Ephesus. Uh, But it's not really till his third missionary journey that Paul actually gets the city of Ephesus. In chapter 19, it starts, he, he has found a few of these disciples, and yet they haven't and baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were baptized into John's baptism. So he teaches them, trains them, baptizes them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church in Ephesus is really formed at that point. And it carries on. Paul is teaching. He starts off in the synagogue. And then he's kicked out. The Jews in the city do not appreciate him or his teaching and what he's saying. And so he gets moved out and he does more house-to-house teaching. Verse 10 of chapter 19 says, This took place for two years. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. His ministry was very productive. It goes on. There's, there's wonders that Paul is doing. And there seems to be this occultic hold in Ephesus that, that is broken. As Paul is doing ministry, they give up these, these magic and witchcraft things that they've been pursuing. And verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And then verse 21 starts, and there's this riot that's occurred And it goes throughout the rest of the chapter where he's been lied about and the people hate him and want him kicked out or killed. It does not happen. He he survives this process, uh, but there is great persecution. 
And in chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. He's been in the church of Ephesus there for about three years, and he leaves to go to Macedonia where Philippi would be and, and care for that church for a little bit. Prior to this time or during this time, Paul's written the book of Galatians. He's written First and Second Corinthians. He's written First uh, and Second Thessalonians, and he's written Romans. He is well in the middle of his ministry. He is doing his ministry throughout the world that God has called him to do. In the future, Paul is later going to be imprisoned in Rome from this, and then he's going to have another Roman imprisonment. And during that, that latter imprisonment or the time in between, he's going to write to Timothy. And he's actually going to have Timothy stay at this church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He says, Timothy, I've trained you. I want you to be training the elders in this church, building into them. Later, Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy 2 he writes, You therefore, my strong son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul very much understood the cost of discipleship. There was a great cost in transferring his life and ministry on to others. There was a great cost in being a disciple. And that returns us to where we are then here in chapter 20. Paul is coming back on his third missionary journey. He'd been at Ephesus. He'd gone up to Macedonia and ministered to a few other churches. And he's coming back. And chapter uh, 20, verse 16 says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul wants to get back home to the church in Jerusalem, celebrate Pentecost with them there. And so he decides, I'm going to skirt by Ephesus and go to a different place, Miletus. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So, so Paul has gone to a different, it's a, a port city south of Ephesus. He's called them to come meet with him before he goes on to Jerusalem. And this is the meeting that takes place here. Where we are in this passage is this meeting that's taking place. From this, we get uh, this, this main idea, being a disciple and a discipler will cost you everything, and it's well worth it. Being a disciple and discipler will cost you everything, and it is well worth it. We're going to talk about two costs to discipleship and, and why they are worth it. Two parts to discipleship which demand everything from you and are worthy of you laying down everything for so we'll start with, with the personal cost of being a disciple. The personal cost of being a disciple. To, to understand, we need to start with what's the definition of a disciple? What is a disciple? I would suggest a, a definition for you is one who gives up everything in the following and service of another. One who gives up everything in the following and service of another. It includes occupation, lifestyle, practices. Even our own way of thinking would be conformed to that of the leader Paul models this. In the start of it, almost all his epistles, he introduces himself, Paul, a bondservant, or Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He recognizes this is not his life. He's been bought with a price. Therefore, he's supposed to glorify God with his body. The idea of discipleship comes inherently built in with this cost or loss of oneself. 
There's a laying aside of self for another. And in this passage where we start here, we get to see Paul's sufferings as a disciple. We start with Paul's past pains. Look at verses 18 through 21 here. He called them to me, said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. You see him introduced very early on his time there as involved tears and trials. There is suffering. There is hardship. There is pain. Being a disciple will likely mean you will suffer and go through hard times in your life. And in fact, it will likely mean you will go through more suffering and more hard times than you would were you not a disciple. But Paul goes on, he's talking about where are these hardships coming from? Where are these trials and tears coming from? He talks about the plot of the Jews. What we have skipped over there in chapter 19, you can go back and look at that. Them trying to get him kicked out of the city or even get him killed if possible. He's gone through these things. Being a disciple likely mean that others not like you. You may be belittled or ignored, all because of what you stand for. Your actions and speech about the Savior, His righteousness and man's sinfulness are not popular in our world today. In verse 21, he talks about the message that he gives. In verse 20, he says, How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and turning away from sin. That is not a popular thing in our culture today. Embracing of your own guilt, knowing you did wrong and cannot save yourself. That is antithetical to all that the world believes and thinks and would espouse. We, we believe, as the world would believe, that man is good, inherently good. That guilt is a bad thing we should just try to get rid of. And yet the message here, the gospel message as the disciple that we are called to proclaim is that man is broken and sinful and cannot come to God on his own. Man deserves death and hell and suffering And God alone is the answer. Man cannot save himself. And yet the world would suppress the truth that Romans 1, not wanting to be accountable to God, not wanting, rejecting that salvation. And thus oftentimes we, as Christ's disciples, get the brunt of that, of not wanting to be reminded about the truths that we should be talking about. We're called to present this gospel of repentance and sin. So there's these past hardships in Paul's life, talking about his discipleship. He talks about many others in other books, but here specifically it focuses on these. Paul then goes on, he talks about future hardships, future sufferings that he is looking to experience. In verse 23, he says, or in verse 22, start there, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. On top of the unknown that Paul is experiencing here about exactly what is going to happen and how this is going to work out, he is guaranteed time in prison, bonds, afflictions, 
in the prison system at that day, unlike ours, there was not a great care for the prisoner. If you didn't have someone coming and caring for you, providing your food, providing blankets for warmth, those sorts of things, you didn't get cared for. It was not a nice system. There was no equality of care there for the prisoners. You were out of luck if you had no one to help you. It was not a comfortable place. It was intentionally kept uncomfortable to make you miserable and suffer for your crimes. And Paul recognizes this is where he's going. Bonds and afflictions await him. Being a disciple may mean the loss of your personal freedoms and comforts. Losing the things that you love and enjoy. It may mean going to jail for what you believe. Or paying high fines for not supporting sinful choices and the lifestyles of others. It may mean getting looked over for that promotion. It may mean selling and packing up all your worldly possessions to move to a different country. To learn a different language. To to reach them with the gospel of God that they have not heard. It may mean investing your finances into God's kingdom. And in his work here and around the world instead of buying that new toy or the thing you've been wanting. I mean going or sending others on a missions trip with your finances. It may mean spending less of your time on the hobbies and things that you love and instead spending more time serving others involved in the church. There's a cost to discipleship. Paul goes on, not only is, is there this cost of, of loss of freedom and hardship, there's the possibility of death in verse 24 But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly the gospel of the grace of God. Paul recognizes there's a possibility of his death. He realizes that this could lead to his demise. And yet he willingly goes nonetheless. He could have been like Jonah going the other direction. God, I don't want to do this. I'll take a boat the opposite way. And instead, here he is expediting his trip to get to Jerusalem to do what God would call him to do, though there are consequences may even yield his death. Being a disciple may cost you your very life. Our history as a church from its very inception in the book of Acts to today in many countries around the world is beautifully bloodstained. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Missionary Jim Elliott would later be later be killed by the people he went to share the gospel with, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Here's how Jesus says it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servants will be also. The cost of discipleship may be our very death. Or at least certainly death of the things that we love and care about. Third, it may lead to the loss of friendships and human relations. Look at verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. He's telling the Ephesian elders here, you're not going to get to see me again. I'm going to leave and be gone. I am not going to get to be in this relationship anymore. He recognizes he may never see these people that have become so dear to him that he's invested three years of his life with. 
Being a disciple may mean moving away. It may mean loss of those closest to you. Not just the loss of those who've been turned away by the gospel and you speaking truth, but those who are dear to you, those who would be in your family, part of the body of Christ, a loss of even them. Not because they've been pushed away, but possibly because God has called you away or called them away. It may mean that God is calling you to go be a missionary, to be a Christian businessman or woman in a country closed off to the gospel. It may mean that God is calling you to send others. It may mean the loss of your family, your siblings, or even sending your children to some other country for the sake of Christ, to go around the world to reach others with him and his name, that he would be proclaimed and made much of. The cost of personal discipleship is high. Jesus demands everything, the stuff that you have, your very life, those closest friendships to you. Jesus demands it all. The gospel is a free gift, but it costs everything. Discipleship is not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle, a daily choice that we live for another. It's a giving up of all and everything. Luke 9, 23 through 25 says, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what does a man profit if he gains the whole world, but loses and forfeits himself? So the personal cost of being a disciple is everything. What about the cost of discipling others? The personal cost of discipling others. When we talk about discipleship, we, we think more of this aspect, discipling others. The definition of discipling or discipleship might be living and speaking like Christ to help others become more like Christ. Living and speaking like Christ to help others become more like Christ. Simply put, it's being Christ to those around you. It's not just a formal thing where we meet one type a week, one time a week and study the Bible together. It may be that, but I would suggest it is oftentimes discipleship is far bigger than that, far more than that. It's the conversations you have in the kitchen. It's talking with your child in their bed at night. It's interacting with that person at the gym or, or the workplace at the, the water container. It's Choices to do the hard or right things when it doesn't seem like it will make a difference. It's the time spent loving on, talking with, and being with someone. It's the moments of life, pursuing the Savior that others would as well. It's something we do with all of our life. This weekend, we've had the discipleship and biblical counseling classes that are going on, and we have those the next couple months as well. I would encourage you to get to those if you can. Uh, one of the things we talk about in counseling is that everyone counsels. Everyone is counseling. The question is, are you a good counselor? And we, we would say counseling and discipleship are one and the same thing. These are the same things. And so the statement could be, everyone disciples. Are you a good discipler? Are you discipling others well? Ultimately, whether you want to be discipling someone or not, whether you would choose to pursue that or reject that, the fact is that you are. You are discipling others. All those in your life who look at you, who see you, who have the model that you set for them are being discipled by you for better or for worse. You are discipling. 
And in this, we want to see how Paul talks about the cost of discipling others, what it looks like, what it involves to disciple others. Paul starts, verse 26 and verse 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. It involves sharing the whole purpose of God. What does that mean? What does this whole purpose of God mean? Paul uses that earlier, the shrinking back as well in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole purpose of God is sharing the gospel and the implications that it has in the believer's life. When we think about sharing the gospel, I would suggest it is a hard gospel Paul is talking about here. That's why he uses twice that word shrink back. This is not something comfortable, something easy to share with someone. It's an uncomfortable gospel. It's an unliked gospel, a gospel of sin that demands repentance. We talked about that. And and a gospel that demands a humble faith, recognizing we cannot save ourselves. It's a gospel of discipleship that demands giving up all. What we just talked about previously is what we are calling people to, discipleship. We, We must call others to this in our evangelism. True discipling begins with sharing the gospel And that requires them giving up all. Jesus is not a fire escape. The gospel is not a get out of hell free card. Jesus is not merely a means by which we gain a happy life or live in peace. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Christ is to be seen as the king in the way we present the gospel. If the gospel we share with others would be naturally desired by the unregenerate heart, I would suggest it's not a true gospel. If all we offer is freedom from guilt, a friend who will never leave us or forsake us, a friend that loves us unconditionally, and an eternity of bliss, we've missed the point of the gospel. Paul says it clearly, 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In Titus 2, he says, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession— Zealous for good deeds. Being a discipler means we have to say hard things to people about their status before God and the allegiance that they owe Him. Things they may not like to hear. And yet we have a solid model of this in Christ. People may leave us. People may walk away and reject. The people we are building into, seeking to disciple, may not want the true gospel that we offer. And Jesus is okay with that. In Luke 9, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. 
It's like, man, that's a great guy. Like, this is the guy we want on the team of disciples. He's going to follow us forever. Here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's great you want to follow me. I have nothing. You sure you want to do this? Luke 14, now the large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Christ demands everything, and he is not afraid to put that out there. As people come to him, as people say, I would want to be a disciple, as we share the gospel, we must not be afraid or shrink back as well to present the whole gospel of God. It will cost everything. He is the king of all, or he is not king at all. I would encourage you to think about this as as you present the gospel to others. How do you present Christ as the king in the gospel you share if you work in our children's ministries or if you're a parent, to be thinking about that, that our kids are not being saved just to a nice Jesus. They're being saved from damnation and hell by a gracious God who calls them to live a life for him. It might mean talking to your child and saying, buddy, if, if this is what you're wanting, if you're wanting to serve Jesus, it, it, it's going to mean you not getting the time on the computer and instead serving your sister. Are you sure you want that? putting a high cost of discipleship in front of our kids. What our kids are saved from is what they will be saved to. If they're saved from just not having bad things happen, they're not saved from much. If they are saved from sin and hell and death, they are saved to a life lived extravagantly for the king. That's the gospel we must call them to. Second, The cost of discipling others involves looking out for them. Look at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and look for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Be on guard. Be alert. Look out. Be vigilant in your guarding of the people God has given you. Discipling takes effort and work. It means that you need to, it demands your time to connect with this person, to know where their weakness is, where are they going to be drawn away, where would they naturally be tempted, how can I help them, how can I bolster and build up these areas of their lives, what can I talk to them about, how can I bring God's word to bear on their life, to guard them from the deceptiveness of sin, from being drawn away. Third, it involves investing your whole lives into others. 
Paul has talked about there at the end of verse 31. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish one, each one without tears. Night and day doesn't leave much time in between. Paul says it all the time, his whole time. Verse 18, he goes on. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. He's with them. He lives life with them. Paul invests his entire life and time into building into and caring for the Ephesian believers. His whole self is toward them. He speaks of him doing this with the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. Because you have become dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul seems to clearly believe that quality time often only comes with quantity of time. That to, to grow someone, to build into someone, means that you need to be with them constantly, often, spending your life with them. God calls each of us to this in the making of disciples. Christ models this. He takes these guys with him. And he walks down the road and he says, look at those, those flowers over there as they're walking along. Hey, we're eating this meal. What do you think this means? Let me tell you. Christ models this lifestyle of, of bringing people with him in his life. To what Matthew 18, or 28, 19-20 is talking about when we're sent to go and make disciples, baptizing, teaching them to observe all that I command you. There's a lot there that God commands them. Teaching them to commit to to observe all that I commanded you. Being a discipler may very well mean giving up your time, your desires, your dreams, your pursuits, your finances, and much more. It may mean giving up your me time. It may mean not being able to take the time to advance your career and, and get it to where you want it to be or be as high up as you'd like to be. It may mean not having the time to get financial security early on because you're investing in other things. It may mean not spending as much time hanging out with your friends and just partying and having fun. It may mean spending less time doing your favorite hobby. It means imparting the entirety of your life to others. A quick application here specifically for parents. God has called you as the discipler of your child. If you're sitting here saying, I, I don't disciple anyone, you've got kids, you're, you're a discipler. Ephesians 6, for fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. It's this continuing, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, these words which I have commanded to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be the frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house, on your gates, all the time. Parents, you are called to this kind of discipleship of your kids, day in, day out, discipling. We are each one called to this. How are you doing it? Taking time to slow down and listen. 
to get to know people, to understand what's going on in their heart, to really get to know them. Discipling takes time to get to know. Is your time and conversations with the people intentional? Do you have enough time to, to point people to Christ? Or is it just quickly hit and run conversations from person to person to person? Are you giving of your life? Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering. Are you giving of your life? Are you spending the quantity of time necessary to have the quality of time that you'd like? Fourth, the fourth cost requires trusting God for results. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This may be actually be the hardest one here. Because it's trusting God to do the work that you've started, but only he can complete. In our house in the youth ministry, we have sort of a mantra that we're trying to really have sink deep into our hearts. It's God expects faithfulness, not fruitfulness. God expects faithfulness, not fruitfulness. I'm not in charge of the harvest. I'm not in charge of of building or generating things from people in their lives. I am in charge of being faithful to pursue others, to love them on the Lord's behalf. Yet that can be very hard to let go. Being a a discipler requires perseverance, even when there is no visible fruit to look at. Number five. The cost involves every action of our lives. Being a discipler is not just what we say. It's how we live. It's modeled in all aspects of our life. Look at verses 33 through 35. Paul writes, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, I set a model for you. Look at what I did. Actions speak louder than words. Being a disciple requires you to truly walk with the Lord and live for him day in and day out. Paul says, be imitators of me as I follow Christ. It means we need to live for the Lord and call others to do the same with us. And it means we need to repent when we don't and openly and publicly proclaim Christ is the one who is enabling me. Christ is the one who is helping me. Christ is all I have. By his strength, I will persevere. Please follow me in doing the same. Our every action is an action of discipleship. The cost of being a disciple and discipling are very high. In fact, they are everything. So why is it worth it? Why is the cost worth it? Uh, Three major things that I see here from the passage. First, there is a hope of God using us to be involved in the saving of others. There's this hope that God might use us to, to bring others to himself. Paul, in verse 21, talks about this, is testifying these things to Jews and Greeks. He's, he's telling this to everyone. Verse 24, but I will not consider my life of any account as dear to me, so I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. 
God has built and saved us for a purpose. We have this ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We get to take part in fulfilling the ministry that God has given to us. The second reason that's worth it is to be honored by and honoring to the king. Paul, in verse 26, says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul says, I can stand there and stand there as having been faithful Faithful to the very end if need be. He says, what am I going to hear? I'm going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. This is the best of all these things. What it's all for. We get to live for the king. We get to serve the king and take part in honoring and making much of him. And having done so, be able to stand and stand faithful. And third, there is no better way to build relationships with such joy and depth as the disciple. Verses 36 through 38, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. You can feel the grief there. We're losing him. We're, we're not going to see him again. Uh, the fellowship that we've had and enjoyed, it's going to be lost. It's going to be broken. And yet the depth of that relationship, while temporarily lost, has the hope of ultimate permanence in eternity to come. This depth of joy of relationship that we can have now even among the body of believers, as we build into each other, as we are discipled by others and, be, and discipling others, we can know a depth of relationship there that is not possible outside of this, outside in the world. There's a great joy in this relationship that we can have with fellow believers. The cost of discipleship is high, but it's worth it. When Hudson Taylor was 15, his father determined it was time for the boy to gain a wider experience of life. Hudson took up unemployment at a bank, and it was this environment that he first encountered people who openly mocked the Christian faith. He soon joined them in scoffing and swearing. The job also opened his eyes to wealth and those who lived to accumulate and enjoy it. He found himself drawn to money and to the pleasure it could afford. His spiritual life began to languish, and he lost interest in prayer and in the reading of the Bible. When weakening eyes eventually forced him to resign, he returned to his father's shop in a state of deep spiritual crisis. James, his father, attempted to help his son, but was too often harsh and impatient. The crisis deepened. There were difficult days as Hudson, now 17, found himself despondent and short-tempered inwardly and at times outwardly rebelling against his father's strict authority. Amelia, his mother, intervened because she understood Hudson in a way James did not or perhaps could not. She redoubled her efforts to be kind, gentle, and patient toward him. She spoke to him, of course, and counseled him, but also became convinced that the best thing she could do for her son was commit him to prayer. 
During her short holiday that took her away from the family home, she felt compelled to increase the length and earnestness of her prayers. One day that compulsion grew to such a degree that she determined to pray for her son until she came to a sense of assurance that God would save him. She locked herself in a room and for hours pleaded that God would extend mercy to Hudson. And then all of a sudden she believed that God had answered her prayer. Her heart turned from pleading to praise and she worshipped God that he had indeed saved Hudson. Meanwhile, Hudson had been at home, bored and discontent. He began looking for something to do. He wandered into his father's library, and though he pulled book after book from the shelf, found nothing of interest. Finally, he spotted a t- track titled Poor Richard. He read the story, then came to the simple words, the finished work of Christ. In that very moment, Hudson understood that Christ had done all that was necessary for salvation, and the only right response was to accept that work by faith. Right there, he fell on his knees and committed his life to the Lord, promising it to serve him forever. He soon learned that he was on his knees praising God for his salvation. At the same time, his mother was doing the very same thing a number of miles away. Hudson's life was forever changed and transformed. He soon committed his life to missionary work, trained as a doctor, began to preach, and at last departed for China in 1853 with his mother waving farewell. The cost of discipleship is high. And mom giving up her life, her time, her resources, her patience to to gently, patiently, lovingly care for and pray for her son. A son giving up his life and worldly possessions to reach a people who had never heard of the gospel. The cost of being a disciple and discipling others is everything, but it is worth it. Both of these saints, and hopefully you and I, as we follow in their footsteps of being disciples and discipling others, will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, we thank you that Christ came for us to save sinners, to bring us to yourself, to make disciples, to make a people that would be zealous for good deeds who would live for you and die for you and would train and pursue others toward that same end, for you are worthy. Lord, help us. We do not have the strength, power, ability in ourselves to do any of this. And yet with Christ, we can do all of it. Help us to be good disciples. Help us to be good disciplers, that your kingdom, your name would be advanced and made much of. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray this all in his name. Amen.